I was going to start with a Justin Trudeau uh, or Melanie Jolie clip. Um, you've all been spared. <laughs> you've all been spared. I'm going to do it tomorrow. We only have an hour. Maybe we'll I'll be able to squeeze an extra few minutes out of out of Glenn. Uh, we have an hour, so I'm not going to waste any time with decrepit Canadian politics. I'll do that tomorrow. Uh, both Glenn and Robert are in the backdrop, so I'm going to bring them in right now. Uh, this is going to be amazing. Share the link away. And uh, I've got questions for Glenn. I've been listening to interviews all day. My kids now have absorbed more information than they knew they were ever going to absorb about Glenn Lowry uh, in one day. So, okay, let's bring, uh, I'll bring Robert in first. Robert, how goes the battle, sir? Good, good. All right, and I'm going to bring in Glenn. But Glenn, what I'm going to do is this, and I'm going to put myself down here so that I can bring comments up over. All right, gentlemen, this is going to be amazing. Glenn, thank you very much for coming on. Um, Everybody in the chat knows that I delve into childhood, but first, for anybody who's watching who may not know who you are, Glenn, we, we asked for the 30,000-foot overview before diving into childhood to understand how you became the adult that you are. 30,000 feet, and then we get into the details. Okay. You want me to say who I am? <laughs> Please. <laughs> okay, well, uh, I'm in my 70s. I'm, I was born in Chicago in 1948. Uh, I'm an academic economist who has become a public intellectual and a social critic. Uh, I write books and articles and papers. I have a podcast that has some uh, cachet. Um, I've been writing and talking about race and racial inequality in the United States for years and years. Uh, I have an autobiography that's coming out next year, uh, May of 2024, from Norton, uh, called Late admissions confessions of a black conservative so that should be enough to get your juices flowing so you've settled on a name because one podcast i listened uh today it was on human centers um human centered and you hadn't you hadn't uh, hammered down a name for the memoir yet yeah yeah we got a name Okay, that's very that's fantastic. Okay, now Glenn, I start with the basics. I go to Wikipedia, but I watch a lot of interviews. One thing that I didn't hear in any interview: you're born in the South Side of Chicago. Uh, I know you said historically your last name Lowry is of it could be of Scottish descent, meaning that even within the uh, you know the black population in America, there's European ancestry. How far back have you been able to trace your family ancestry in in America or you know in general? Not at all far. I know who my mother and father are. I know who their parents are, although both of their mothers, my mother's mother and my father's mother were dead before I was born. Uh, my father's father, I uh, never really knew well. My father didn't meet his father until he was already an adult. Uh, they developed a relationship, but it was touch and go. Uh, my father's, my mother's father, uh, and I had something of a relationship. He, he was around, but we weren't close. Now, if you ask me about great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents, it would all be a certain amount of speculation. Uh, on my mother's side, people moved up to Chicago from Brookhaven, Mississippi, and Memphis, Tennessee in the years after the First World, World War. It was a large family, my mother's mother's family. Uh, on my father's side, I, I, I really know very little. Uh, as I say, I didn't really know my uh, father's father at all. Neither did he know him when he was a kid. In fact, there's a story. Uh, I spell my name L-O-U-R-Y, and I pronounce it Lowry. But it was originally spelled L-O-W-R-Y. That's my dad's, dad's name. That's how he spells it. And <laughs> when a teacher misspelled my father's name when he was in like the sixth grade or something and spelled it L-O-U-R-Y. My father insisted on keeping the new spelling because he wanted to be, you know, his, his attitude was, well, if my dad didn't bother to show up, then uh, I get to name my, I, you know, I get to spell my name any way I want to kind of thing like that. So I don't know. Is that too much information? Not, not at all. Uh, and before Robert, one more question, just a follow-up. Why is it you didn't know your father's father, your grandfather, because died early, was never was not involved in your dad's life? Or or is there another reason? Well, no, he wasn't involved in my da dad's life very much. He didn't die early. Uh, my father developed a relationship with him, but it was always kind of touch and go. There was there was a lot of distance there. And so he was this vague figure who uh, I, I, I never had a, a real relationship with and whom I never sat and talked, you know, 
about the old people and the old country and stories like that. I mean, I wasn't, there, there wasn't a connection there. And, and therefore, I'm not able to tell you much about his ancestors. It seemed like one uh, great influence on your life was your uncle, uh, who reminded me of, uh, you know, the, the, the tradition, similar to Clarence Thomas, uh, within the going all the way back to the black populist movement of the late 1800s, that, you know, sort of the black independent working class that was big on self-reliance, self-empowerment, was realistic about racial oppression and issues gar- regarding race. But their response to it was not victimization, but instead use it as a tool and as fuel for self-empowerment and self-reliance. How much did he influence your perspective on things as uh, you developed? Well, this is Uncle Mooney. This is my aunt's husband, my my mother's sister's husband, Uncle Mooney. We called him Mooney because he had eyes that kind of half moon shaped eyes. He was a barber and and a hustler, a small businessman, a tradesman, uh, you know, he, he he did what he needed to do to make a buck, but he and, and they ran a dry cleaners. They, they you know they they were they were uh, very um, you know entrepreneurial people, and yeah, he did have this attitude of uh, self reliance, and you know he had no time for uh, deadbeats and the people who were not serious about getting ahead. He was not a belly aker. He knew what racism was, but he didn't spend a whole lot of time worrying about it. Uh, he was too busy taking care of his family. He'd kick us out of bed at 10 o'clock on Saturday morning, you know, telling us, get up and get busy, you know, thinking, uh, you, you know, the half the day is gone already and you're still lounging around in the bed. Uh, he was an admirer, although not a follower of the so-called Honorable Elijah Muhammad, the head of the Nation of Islam, which was headquartered in Chicago, though he was not a religious man at all and certainly not a Muslim, but he he admired the straight-backed self-reliant, defiant kind of uh, attitude of the of the Muslims. So, yeah, I mean, he had friends. He, he took me once to visit a friend who was incarcerated uh, in the uh, prison in uh, Joliet in Illinois, uh, you know, who, who walked on both sides of the line, played the game on both sides of the fence. And, you know, my uncle was not a hoodlum or a criminal by any means, but, yeah. He, he had all these different uh, connections and whatnot. Yeah, that, uh, great man, great man, my uncle. Uh, and he did have a big influence on my life amongst uh, others. Yeah. You lived with your uncle, from from what I heard on Lex Friedman, you lived in, in your uncle's house. They gave you a spot in the back where you were living with your family in your uncle's house? Yeah, my mother, my sister, and I, my mother was divorced by that time from my dad, and we were living with her. And she had kind of bounced around, and, and my aunt Elois, my mother's sister, um, Uncle Mooney and Aunt Elois, they had they were one of the first black families to buy a house in this neighborhood on the south side of Chicago called Park Manor uh, in the 1950s, and they 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 brought us in, uh, carved out an apartment upstairs in the back of this uh, large house, uh, two bedroom apartment. I slept on a couch. My sister had the bedroom. My mother had the bedroom. I slept on the couch and, you know, but I mean, it, it was a very uh, big, beautiful house and a successful, uh, my, my mother's uh, sister and husband were, were a successful middle-class uh, black family. And, you know, there were fruit trees in the back and lawn in the front and no gunshots to be heard. I, I, I can't say that I, I came up hard, uh, but it was largely through the uh, connection between my mother and her sister uh, that, uh, you know, that I had a, a more or less middle-class upbringing. You know, one thing I'm intrigued by is, in general, as the, as the civil rights movement shifted from Martin Luther King in the 1960s to aspects of more racial grievance and sort of the Democratic Party policies on war on poverty, that, you know, like when I was trying to figure out why there's been a decline of working-class kids going to law school, end up on this deep dive and you know, figured and there's all these studies that show the main thing for working class kids to overachieve is that they disproportionately have an inner loci of control. They believe they control their own future and their fate. Whereas those that believe there's an outer loci of control, that they have no control over their own lives, don't tend to achieve. And it seems to me a lot of the victimology narrative that the racial grievance communities have embraced and the Democratic Party's policies often implement are designed to tell uh, 
black Americans as well as others in that position that they're victims, they're weak, they're incompetent, they can't do anything, that aspects of affirmative action seem to have this sort of what Justice Thomas referred to the stigma effect, that it seems all designed to keep black Americans uh, repressed uh, and dependent and wards of the state and wards of the system. And rather than promote an inner loci of control, promotes self-empowerment, promote independence. And to some degree, a reason for that uh, could be that if you're the Democratic Party and you want a reliable voting constituency, what happens if you give them the tools of self-empowerment that lead to them no longer needing you as a political party, uh, as a ward of the state? How much do you, how much of that, like, if you look at like Nation of Islam, you look at Malcolm X, even that part of the tradition, uh, very much self-reliance, self-empowerment, not for reducing the independence, uh, the old work, uh, black working class tradition that Clarence Thomas re- represents in part that he grew up in, the tradition of the black populist movement of the late 1800s, early 1900s, that that tradition seemed to be lost in the civil rights community and the Democratic Party as it embraced a kind of uh, a, a desire to treat all black Americans as permanent victims and see everything as color based uh, to, de- to the degree that being successful means you're being white. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? <laughs> My thoughts about all of that. I see that you have a theory of the case, <laughs> a well-developed uh, uh, model or model of framework. I don't necessarily disagree with, uh, with the basic thrust of your argument. I, I, in fact, I, uh, I find a lot to agree with there. I think it's incomplete. Uh, I think it doesn't explain why black people go for it. It, it, it doesn't explain why we're as comfortable as we are with this uh, half-baked escape from freedom account that we're the victims of history and that there's nothing we can do for ourselves. It doesn't explain why we're content with that. But I, but I think it does explain a lot about uh, the why it is the president of the United States would promise America that he was going to appoint a black woman as his vice president and a black woman to the United States Supreme Court. Or why it is that Barack Hussein Obama, the first African-American president, would make Al Sharpton his ambassador to black America and would say stupid shit like, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon, when no son of Obama's would be anywhere close to the sociological characteristics of Trayvon Martin in Sanford, Florida. Uh, I think it explains why Joe Biden would uh, go around saying, I'll put you all back in chains. Uh, and and uh, if you don't know whether or not to vote for me or Trump, you ain't really black. Uh, or or it's Jim Crow 2.0 when he's talking about ballot security laws in the state of Georgia where more black people came out to vote and where they elected two Democratic senators in 2022. And they're talking about taking the rights to vote away from black people. They're uh, re- waving a bloody shirt in our faces and trying to scare us to death that the Ku Klux Klan is coming to get us. It might help to explain why the Democratic candidates for vice president and president in 2020 called Jacob Blake. This is Kenosha, Wisconsin thug who was stealing his girlfriend's car and kidnapping her children and had a knife in his hand when he got shot in the back. And they're calling him to console him at his hospital bed. Okay, they're pandering by waving the bloody shirt of anti-Black racism to Black people, it would explain some of that. But it doesn't explain why, when you talk to a celebrity, a rapper, an athlete, uh, a movie star, uh, or or one of these African-American people, and you ask them what's going on, they'll tell you, like uh, LeBron James will tell you, I'm afraid to walk out of the hotel, the cops are going to get me. It does not explain that. Uh, So... Uh, I'm I'm partly with you uh, on your account, certainly in terms of the motives of the Democratic uh, uh, politicians, uh, in terms of their reliance on the on the African American vote. But I'm not sure why my people have been prepared to settle for uh, stewardship, for being wards of the of the liberal state, uh, for for living in the 19th century, 1619 project reparations when all the action is in the 21st century, like the Chinese are coming, 
You know, if you don't, if you can't read and count, you haven't got a chance in the 21st century. You, you, you're trading on Tulsa, 1921, 1923. That's your story. It doesn't explain why that's all we got. Glenn, I'm I'm only understanding a lot of things now in retrospect or in hindsight. Like looking back, Robert and I have talked about the origins of Planned Parenthood and you know uh, eugenics and a lot of a lot of other things. I don't understand how certain demographics, and I'll say that you know the black population in America and the Jewish population in America vote almost predictably Democrat. It seems to be a, a tool of marketing and a tool of appealing to one's sensitivities and also a tool of promising that the government will take care of you. But to bring this back to something in your personal life that I'm, I'll, I'll kick myself if I don't ask the question for, Wikipedia says, it's, it's not a controversial fact, but that you had you were a young father to two kids. And I ask this because, you know, knowing the history of Planned Parenthood, who the, who the targets were for that, and it was always cloaked in benevolence. Well, well, it's reproductive care when some people call it uh, something far worse in terms of targeting a specific population. If I may ask about that, is Wikipedia accurate? How did it go about that as a young a young adult, your father, two kids? How did the decision come to work and to pay for those kids? Um, and how did it all turn out as far as your life experience goes? Yeah, well, my life should not be taken as a model for anybody. Uh, I was a father at 18 and again at 19. And again at 21, I had a son born out of wedlock when I was a young a very young man, Alden, uh, whom I didn't recognize in, until he was in college. Uh, and we've developed a wonderful relationship, uh, he and his three daughters and, and I, my grandchildren. Uh, but that's another story. But uh, yeah, uh, my, my girlfriend became pregnant and uh, we, you know, I mean, you just, it wasn't legal to terminate the pregnancy, but it was certainly possible to do it. Uh, but it, it just wasn't, it didn't feel right. It wasn't, you know, the year was 1967. You, you know, it just wasn't, wasn't the right thing to do. And, and we didn't marry right, right away. In fact, uh, both of my daughters, my oldest two children, uh, were born before their mother and I were married. We got married after the second kid was born. Uh, I mean... <laughs> It was the world that I came up in in Chicago. I mean, I was a virgin when I was 16 years old and graduated from high school valedictorian in my class. But, you know, I, I had some catching up to do. And <laughs> uh, we considered terminating the second pregnancy. I talk about this in the book, but, you know, we just just couldn't. So uh, we married and and. And my my son, my third child, Alden, came along, and uh, respectability was important. Putting one foot in front of the other, staying on the right side of the line, living decently was important. I went to work. I, I dropped out of college. I got a job at a printing plant. Uh, it was 1967, 68, 69, boom economy in the, the United States. I, I did okay and was able to put one foot in front of the other. Uh, and then started taking classes at a, a community college and got discovered by one of my professors and ended up at Northwestern University and, and became a star student and then went to graduate school at MIT and, you know, became my academic. So it's not your day, everyday story. It's pretty, you know, extraordinary tale. I had some talent. I had some luck. I had some great teachers. I had support from my first wife and whatnot. We, we didn't our marriage didn't survive graduate school and, you know, I remarried and so on. It's a long story, but uh, in any case, yeah, Planned Parenthood, <laughs> abortion rate amongst African-Americans, you can look at the statistics, it's pretty stratosphere, strat stratospheric. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, there's a, I, I'm not, I don't believe in conspiracy theories. I prefer to just say, I don't know. So, where are the progressives coming out of the era of uh, Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and Margaret Sanger and all of that, laying a kind of eugenicist foundation for the limitation of certain populations, echoes from which we could find all the way into the late part of the 20th century and into our day? Certainly possible. But I don't know. <laughs>
Now, the I was curious, what was it like growing up in the South Side of Chicago in the 1960s? I mean, you got Fred Hampton, you got the Black Panthers, you got you got the Democratic National Convention that held in Chicago in 1968. Yeah, uh, you know the what? What was that? Uh, what was that like? Well, it it was interesting, and then you talked about 68, 69 Hampton. I think Hampton is 69. Uh, and the, the Black Panther Party and, and whatnot. It, it was, and you had uh, Malcolm X around the Nation of Islam. Of course, he's, his ministry was in New York after it matured, but uh, he was in Chicago for a while. Um, uh, and it was hip. There was a lot of style. The music was amazing. Uh, people, you know, the way they dressed, the parties. <laughs> uh, very dynamic. Uh, it it was jazz. It was blues. Uh, it, it you know, uh, it was good food. Uh, yeah, I'm not answering. I'm I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, no, you're leading me into a question. Follow up on this. You've seen what Chicago Chicago has transformed into something wildly different than what it was when you were growing up there. It's a big city, but yeah, the, the neighborhoods that I used to spend time in are now places where I wouldn't dare to walk after dark. Uh, and, it, you know, everybody can read the newspaper. You know about what's going on, the crime and stuff like that in Chicago. And they've just elected this ultra progressive mayor, Brandon Johnson. And, you know, there's a struggle for the future of the city going on. And I don't live there. I haven't lived in Chicago since 1979. So, you know. I'm I'm slow to draw conclusions. Actually, and ironically, my son Alden, whom I've mentioned, my firstborn son, is a journalist for WBEZ, which is the public radio station in Chicago, and he writes a monthly column for the Chicago Sun Times. And I love my son. Uh, I, I'm grateful for the relationship that we enjoy and his three beautiful daughters and everything. But I tell you, I, I don't <laughs> I don't agree with the line that he's taken. <laughs> And in the Sun Times, which is the predictable liberal line. So, for example, you know, well, I, I don't know how much to go into this. Anyway, I mean, it's it's kind of funny because he is Alden Lowry, L O U R Y, and I am Glenn Lowry, L O U R Y, and that's my son. And his byline will be found in the city's one of the city's flagship newspapers on a regular basis, and he'll be saying stuff that is exactly the opposite of what I'm saying. <laughs> now, I, I won't ask what Christmas dinners look like, uh, but on, on, on that on that issue, like, how does it come to be that a, a demo, a demographically large swaths of the population still buy into it, and those who critique it, uh, such as yourself, actually get demonized for being the race traders or the extremists? And and oddly enough, it's a, totally analogous with the Jewish community as well. Vote they vote Democrat. Uh, I should say we vote Democrat. We vote liberal in Canada. And the, and the loudmouths like myself get called the radical far right. And I don't understand, A, why it's true of, of, of a, an entire demographic statistically and how you talk people out of it. But more importantly, Glenn, do you have any insights as to how and why it happens? Yeah, I wish I had more to say about this. Uh, Steadfast Democrats, Steadfast Democrats, that's the name of a book. I don't remember the authors, political scientists. They did some surveys and they're, they're basically talking about peer pressure and conformity. And it somehow becomes a indicator of loyalty to the solidarity with commitment to the cause of, of uh, racial justice that you vote Democratic, that you support the progressive cause. I mean, now the academics, they have their theories, they have their racial capitalism and, you know, their CRT and whatnot, where they end up on the left out of some kind of identitarian exegesis. Uh, but the working stiffs, uh, it's, it, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, the uh, journalists have made a lot out of the fact that black men have drifted away a little bit from the Democratic Party. I don't know the statistics offhand. So instead of 10 percent, maybe it's 20 percent who are considering voting Republican or whatever for black men, black women less so. But that's still not any any kind of any kind of major movement. I mean, I you know, you could go historically. Uh, there's a, a, 
I do remember this author. Her name is Nancy Weiss, and the book is called Farewell to the Party of Lincoln. And it's a history of how FDR got Blacks to flip from voting Republican because most Blacks were in the South and because the Southern Democrats were segregationists and Dixiecrats and the Republicans were the party of Lincoln. Uh, and, you know, by the time you're at 1936, the numbers have shifted dramatically. And by the time you're at 1948, you know, it's, a, it's, it's kind of all over the party of Lincoln in terms of black support for Republicans. So there, there's a story there and you could probably make some sense of it. And then uh, the civil rights. I mean, it's true that Democrats were standing in the schoolhouse door throughout the South for a century. But by the time you get to 1964 and it's Lyndon Johnson and it's the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and the War on Poverty, uh, you, you kind of have the, the Democrats uh, cornering the market on uh, who's behind dealing with the legacy of, of, of racism and discrimination. Uh, I don't know. Uh, the... Um, I, I'll leave it at that because I'm I'm just making this up. <laughs> sure. The uh, uh, to what do you ascribe your uh, methodology? Like in, in the sense of what I have found in uh, people that are very independent of thought is that they tend to have two traits in abundance. One is uh, natural curiosity, uh, and the other is a, a a willingness and a capability to step into other people's shoes, to sort of and to empathize, to be able to see the world through a different perspective. Like in, in watching all of your discussions over the years, uh, you have an exceptional capacity to explore all the different alternative hypotheses and to, ad, ad, to almost advance them as if you were its own advocate, even when they're often opposite positions within that. Uh, to what is where did is that something you developed? Is that something you learned growing up? Is that something you experienced? To what do you ascribe that uh, that origin of independence of thought? Okay, this is going to sound funny, but I was a mathematics major in college, and I did a PhD at MIT when I left college. It was in economics, but it was mathematical. It was formal. It was, it, you know, you had to have a model. You had to know what your assumptions were. And you couldn't say anything that you couldn't derive from the previous axioms and uh, lemmas. And, and you know. <laughs> uh, sort of, I got a really, really good education in college and in graduate school. Uh, and I had teachers who were not just technicians. I mean, some of them were, were very broad people. And uh, so I, you know, I was reading books. I was reading novels. I, I studied the German language. I was reading uh, existential philosophy, you know, Camus and Sartre and those people and uh, Wittgenstein and those people. And, you know, I, was, I, I read Marx. I read Hayek. I read Friedman. Uh, you know, I, I read Keynes. I read Galbraith, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, Again, I don't know if I'm answering or not. I got a really, really good education that took me out of the, I mean, out of the sloganeering, uh, spouting rhetoric, talking about what you feel, uh, the the kind of uh, epistemic authority I had. i you know, lived experience. I mean, lived experience didn't mean a damn thing. And at Northwestern University in 1969, when I was a student, didn't mean anything. Uh, Goethe, Mann. Kafka, you know, I mean, so I, I've, I've never been one to settle for the, the party line or the story. I've always wanted to, to go deeper uh, and to think for myself. Uh, I had the experience early in my career of going to Harvard uh, as a professor of economics and of Afro-American studies. This is one reason why I understand the other side because I, you know, I, I lived among them, you know, and I had sociologists and historians and literature people and philosophers who were of the Afro uh, orientation in terms of the academics. And these are smart people and, you know, the books that they were writing and reading and, and all of that. So I got to some degree immersed in that. Um, I, I spent uh, 
a decade at Boston University in the 1990s as a university professor when John Silber was president of the university, the late John Silber, who was, you know, quite a quite a character. And he built a great university there. And I was part of that university professors program. So I got to meet people like uh, Roger Scruton, uh, who, who, you know, the great the conserv late great conservative uh, British philosopher who was a a professor, he would fly over from London and spend three months at a time, you know, teaching at BU, collecting his salary and whatnot. But but we and and others and others and I, I kind of got out of the got out of the ghetto, <coughs> the intellectual ghetto of you know. So again, I, I'm not sure if I'm responding effectively, but uh, <coughs> I've had a broad education. The other thing I'd say is you know. <laughs> What passes for the um, consensus on the racial questions in the United States has been bankrupt for nearly a half century. So it's easy pickings. And, you know, I've been out there. I mean, I'm, you know, Confessions of a Black Conservative. I was a Reagan conservative in the 1980s. So it's not like Donald Trump flipped me. <laughs> Uh, so the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that attend, uh, you know, uh, being uh, a, a neoliberal economist, which is what I am, and a and a cultural conservative, which is what I am, uh, and and uh, being willing to associate with Republicans and conservatives, even on racial issues, and opposing affirmative action and reparations, and thinking that the mass incarceration uh, narrative is only half the story, and that one is oversold, that half is oversold. And whatnot. It's not new to me. It's something that I've got my scars. I've, I've been through the valley of the shadow of death, you know, whatever. And, and I'm still kicking at 74, be 75 in a couple of months. So there's not a lot they can do to me now. Glenn, I, I was thinking, my wife's a neuroscientist, and I had this discussion with one of her. I won't identify the person too much, but, you know, is there a brain to politics? And growing up, I was always told, you know, liberalism is a mental disorder. And if you're not liberal when you're young, you have no heart. And if you're not conservative when you're old, you have no brain. And I, I, I see the truth in this now. But from a policy perspective, I can understand how the policy of a narcissist or, you know, that type of brain creates, uh, on the one hand, the dependence relationship, the insecurity of living alone, and the sort of moral, spiritual, ideological blackmail, which I think are all the underpinnings <clears throat> of affirmative action. Now, I know how you feel about affirmative action, but we're going to get into it. But that would be like the perfect example of a narcissist sort of a brain disorder type um, uh, uh, policy, which then gives the, the person awarding that, that affirmative action power over the person over whom they, you know, they bequeath it. And so they end up saying you know, to the Clarence Thomases, we own you and you can't deviate from this policy because you benefited from it. Whereas Katanji Jackson Brown, she can come up with a decision that that praises it, and she's 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 good. I don't know if this criticism was leveled against you, but uh, have you had this criticism leveled against you in terms of your 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 experience at MIT, where you know some will say you benefited from what was affirmative action, and therefore you can never claim to have succeeded on your own merits, and then you know just flesh out your utter disdain for the policy of affirmative action. Yeah, I have had that experience. I I, I still get it from time to time. Didn't you benefit from affirmative action? In fact, an old friend of mine, I don't want to name him. He's, he's a distinguished scientist. He's black and we're roughly the same age said uh, after the decision, he's been prodding me, you know, why are you conservative? Why are you conservative? We've had a series of emails going on over different issues. And after the decision came, he wrote and he said, I don't know what would have come of me if that decision had come down in 1968, you know, going back 55 years. Uh, how about you? And of course, the truth is, if Northwestern University hadn't been looking for uh, bright kids from the south side of Chicago who had maybe, you know, I had two kids, I had dropped out of college, I was married, I, you know, I wasn't your typical college matriculant, I probably wouldn't have, you know, been on the career path that I'm on. So, you know, that that's that's a given. I mean, and, and you say it's a kind of... Uh, trick, you know, where they, you, 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 you trap the people intellectually by making them all kind of complicit in the thing. And then they can't, they can't stand outside of it. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think the argument 
you benefited from it, therefore you can't uh, criticize it. It's just wrong. I mean, I, I think it's just a non sequitur. Uh, you can change your mind. You might not have had any control over what not you've been for. Are you telling me a, a person who represents a farm district in Kansas can't go to Congress and vote against agricultural subsidies because they their family received agricultural subsidies? That's ridiculous. Um, it's ad hominem. It, 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 instead of, if we're arguing about affirmative action and the issue on the table is, does it violate the 14th Amendment, which is what the Roberts uh, opinion uh, declared, <clears throat> um, rather than make a case about that one way or the other, you try to discredit the person who has criticized affirmative action. You're a black and <clears throat> your motives, you know, you're Clarence Thomas, you're a grifter, you're, you're pulling up the ladder after yourself. You you don't have any concern for your fellow blacks. <clears throat> Without, I mean, <laughs> man is a sitting Supreme Court justice. He's supposed to have his opinions driven by Racial fealty? They, don't they understand how ridiculous that is? Um, so, I, like I said, I'm way past worrying about that kind of thing right now. They can say whatever they want to. Affirmative action? Uh, I, I told Lex Friedman, I don't just disagree with affirmative action. I hate affirmative action. I, I remember saying that. And I, I guess you probably heard that. I, I was trying to clip that six minute section to two hours and 39 minutes to two forty five, And then I realized you can't record off podcast on, on off Spotify on your phone, but yeah, no, I, I, and your reasoning was, was phenomenal. I just, uh, for those who didn't hear it. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, first of all, it's a distraction from the real issue. So the real issue is the relative underdevelopment of intellectual uh, performance in the African-American population. So, you have a place like Harvard or UNC, Harvard, I don't know, they get scores of thousands of applicants and they admit a few thousand students. They admit like 1,800 out of 35,000 applications, something like that. So they're way in the right tail. They, they're selective. They're hyper-selective. They're way in the right tail. And you've got these distributions that overlap, but, you know, they're different. The Black... Uh, uh, distribution of uh, intellectual mastery and academic performance is to the left of the Asian and the white distribution. <clears throat> That's the problem. Affirmative action doesn't do anything to address that, but it skins cream. It, it is a, a bunch of hyper elite and selective and precious and exclusive and uh, ultra, ultra elite clubs that uh, have decided that uh, for aesthetic purposes, they, they want a certain kind of uh, ethnic composition in their student body. And, and so they, they skim cream and in doing so, they have to implement their selection decisions in a way that's racially discriminatory. This is what the court found. Um, it doesn't do anything to address the problem. Secondly. It's humiliating. It's undignified. It's a surrender of your dignity. If you are an African-American and you accept that you will not be judged in elite competition for, you know, who are the best and the brightest by the same standard because of something that happened to your great grandparents. That's not equality. Uh, that's a client patron relationship. You, you, are there by their leave. They're looking the other way at your inadequacy. Now, you can't say this. Of course, this is racist. And the only reason I can get away with saying it is because I'm Black. But you cannot tell me that two or 300 point difference on the SAT uh, combined score doesn't manifest itself in terms of differences in the performance of people after they've been admitted. So you're, 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 you're creating this environment at these hothouse hyper-competitive places where the other kids who didn't get the benefit of affirmative action all had to uh, bust their butts to get there. And they got there by their fingernails, most of them. And they're hungry. I mean, I'm talking about the calculus course. I'm talking about the biochemistry course. I'm talking about the Shakespeare course. I'm talking about the uh, analytic philosophy course. And, and, and these kids are there and their standard deviation are more below now. That, why are you doing that uh, 
to, to these kids. It, it, it invites us to lie. It promotes great inflation. It, uh, it, it's kind of corrupt. It, it, it's corrupt. You want to have it both ways. You want to be elite, selective, ultra-exclusive, and you want to be racially diverse, which requires you lowering the bar for the Blacks. And, and then you want to put it beyond criticism. The only reason we know anything about what's going on at these places is because of the discovery requirements of lawsuits. They have to be forced to reveal the data. It's a scandal. When Sandra Sellers, this is a lecturer at the Georgetown Law Center Law School, teaching a negotiations course, said into a Skype microphone when she thought nobody was listening to her colleague, you know, the kids that are at the bottom that did the worst on my last test, I mean, they're almost all black. I don't know what to do about it. It's terrible. And she's practically crying to her colleagues. She's sad about it. It's heartbreaking to her. She's confessing. And the thing gets out. She, it was on a, one of these uh, course things. And, you know, they kept the recording going beyond what she realized it was going. And one of the kids got it and they put it up on uh, Twitter. They called her a racist for observing the fact that the black kids were concentrated at the bottom of her class. Now, this is Georgetown Law School. This is one of the top 20 law schools in the country. Those kids are going to go out of there and try to clerk for judges and try to be associates at firms and whatnot. It was a predictable consequence of their affirmative action policy, admitting black students with significantly lower credentials that what that woman reported would be the case. That is not equality. There's nowhere... Close. Of course, the black kids, once it was revealed, made a federal case out of it and accused the institution of racism. They fired that lecturer. They fired her and her colleague who heard her say these things and did not admonish her in real time, resigned under pressure. Phony, lies, corruption, bankrupt, uh, hide the ball. Uh, pretend that what's true isn't true, you have still not addressed the problem. The problem is that there's a difference in the rate at which African-Americans are acquiring this upper tail, specialized, extra special ability, which is the uh, what makes these places, these elite places go. So, uh, you know, I mean, you wouldn't do it in any other arena. I mean, it's going to seem like a cliche, but think about it for a minute. Suppose you did a professional sports thing where you did this kind of thing and everybody could see who could run fast, who was dropping the ball, who was getting uh, their shots blocked every time. So uh, give me equality. Uh, I thought that the... Uh, opinions written by Justice uh, John Roberts and the concurring opinion by Justice Cla Clarence Thomas were magisterial in defense of the interpretation of the American Constitution that they offered there. Uh, and I thought that the arguments, the sociological, ar sociological arguments offered by the dissenters of Justice Sotomayor and concurring Justice uh, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson were completely unpersuasive on the legal point. What they said was, <clears throat> it's not a colorblind society. Race still matters in America. Well, everybody knows that. The question was not whether or not it's a colorblind society. The question was whether or not it's a colorblind constitution. So by them observing race still matters, they still bear the burden of showing why that should in influence our interpretation of the constitution, a burden they don't even attempt to bear. So, Robert, go for it. I, yeah. I, know, I know you got something. Well, along the same lines, my theory has been that, you know, I had my own experience with this. I was a scholarship student at Yale, and it was clear that uh, there, there wasn't what we called real diversity at Yale, not diversity of thought, not diversity of socioeconomic status. Got into how legacy admissions was, in fact, being facilitated by affirmative action policies. But one of the other components of this was ways to put it is if Nat Turner got a scholarship to Harvard, he probably doesn't lead a slave rebellion uh, that it, that I don't think Malcolm X would be a fan of affirmative action, that it was a, another effort by the system to not only strip potential leadership from a, 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 a potential group of people, but also 
to continue create this dependency by deliberately making sure people came in that did not necessarily would, would struggle once they got there. They were effectively making those individuals even more dependent on their so-called benefactors and also being able to cover up the fact that they're not meaningfully investing in the ongoing capacity of the community to develop independence in economics, culture, politics, and society by uh, encouraging real education, quality education at the earliest stages. Uh, any thoughts on how much affirmative action actually facilitated undermining the independence of the black community? Well, if I were the president of a historically black college and university and, and, and was you know, looking to make a name for myself, to build an endowment to enhance the reputation of my institution, I would make a federal case out of the cream skimming robbery of the black community that these institutions with multi-billion dollar endowments who want to wear a charm bracelet with a different color charm for every color of the rainbow around their precious elite exclusive wrists. And I'd say, if we in black America want to create scientists, if, if we want to create lawyers who can mount a civil rights movement, if we want to create entrepreneurs and, and industrialists who go out and start companies and will build something in our community and will make something happen as we have been doing since the days of Booker T. Washington, Send our best and brightest here. Don't, don't, uh, okay, so that, that would be one point that I would make. So yeah, there is a co-optation aspect to it. But another point that I would make <clears throat> is that um, affirmative action is actually parasitic on a pre-existing strata of, of stratification, a pre-existing structure of stratification and inequality. It argues we're going to have these, elites. If you're going to get an interview from Goldman Sachs, you better be an undergraduate at Yale or Dartmouth or Penn or Brown or Princeton. You better not be an undergraduate at Illinois State University or Wyoming or Ms. U or, or Kansas State or whatever, because that's flyover country. Now, I'd be willing to bet that there's some pretty smart people at Kansas State. You know what I mean? But so to create the black leadership cadre, say the affirmative action advocates, we have to make space within our precious institutions for some African-Americans, even though we have to discriminate in order to do so. But never question that you have to come to our place to get into the inner sanctum. We're the only portal into the elite. That pre-existing inequality doesn't even get questioned. So uh, that, that's the kind of thing I would say. Now, um, I, I jokingly sometimes say that, you know, the, the only people who never let you forget that you're Jewish are Jews and, and I say, you know, anti-Semites, but I mean it more in the sense of people who, for whom identity always plays that, that pivotal role. So they, they'll never let you see you for anything <clears> other <throat> than what you are, which is what I see as being the outcome of affirmative action. It's, you know, the, the community, will only see you for that. And those who let you in, who were obsessed with that, will only see that. But, you know, bringing it back to the analogy, uh, and you used it in Lex Friedman, and people <coughs> use it all the time, that you don't see many Jews in basketball. You don't see, you know, there's a certain demographic in uh, sprinting. And the reason why people don't have much of a problem with that, A, it's measured by fractions of a second, and it's, it's, it's like methodical. You can't argue with it. But on the other hand, nobody takes that failing to be one of intellect. And, you know, taking a less controversial example where you say, like, there's not enough women partners at law firms. And so you say, well, we got it. It's got to be 50 50 because 50 percent of the world is, is women. It doesn't make sense that they're not partners at law firms without factoring in that they may not want that on average as a whole. And by forcing in 50 percent women who you know, you're not selecting from those who would voluntarily do it, you are skewing the results, but also yeah. you know, skewing those who you would who, who you would elect when it comes to things like getting into school. People say, well, if there's an inequality of outcome there, then it reflects on intellect. And therefore, I must interpret that differential of result as reflecting on the intellect of the group that doesn't make it in with the same numbers as their statistical representation in society. And so how do you get past that uh, fear of it? Like, how, how do you get past that stigma where it's not basketball, it's not sports, 
it reflects on intellect and we refuse to accept that one demographic doesn't have the same results by way of outcome? Well, you grow up. That's the way you get it because it doesn't have to come out equal. I mean, <laughs> you say you're Jewish. I'm an economist. Let's look at the list of Nobel Prize winning economists and see how many of them are Jewish. I don't know the number offhand, but I know it's high. I meant, I meant to look that up. I, I know I, it's high, too. We're gonna, I know we're gonna it's high. I mean, if you were to say 40 or 50 percent, I would not be surprised. OK. I mean, not all populations are going to be excellent at the same thing. Now, you say intellect. Now, intellect is partly natural talent and it's partly what you spend your time developing and cultivating. Uh, and uh, I think there's enough disparity in the structures of development and cultivation of intellect as between these populations. I talk about racial populations. There's enough cultural difference and uh, background historical difference that, you know, I don't know. I'm, an, I, I'm trained statistically, but I haven't actually tried to, you know, analyze data to parse out, you know, what proportion you can explain by this or by that. I've read people who have done so. Uh, I agree with you that the specter of inferiority, of intellectual inferiority sort of haunts this whole subject. And therefore it leads to some people to insist on proportional outcomes. This is the Ibram Kendi kind of view of the world. If, if you don't get proportional outcomes, you must be a racist because uh, you're saying that black people are inferior when you know that when you know that they're not, and therefore there should be proportional outcomes, and hence any disparity is evidence of unfairness. And you know the logic of that is just obvious. I mean, there's disparity everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's disparity. The Chinese in Southeast Asia, the Igbo in Nigeria, the Jews, etc. The yeah, groups are different. This is one of the things that Thomas Sowell has spent a lifetime uh, in his work documenting. Uh, I mean, I, I think there is a challenge here for we African-Americans and for people of goodwill who, who want to see social justice, where you have to let the chips fall where they may. And, and, and you have to be willing to accept that the out outcomes may not all be equal. I mean, we may never get to the bottom of it, but... Uh, the, the insistence on equality and the uh, effort to engineer it uh, between these populations is, you know, it, is, it, it's, it doesn't work. It's, it's, a, it's a formula for tyranny, frankly. I mean, I, I think there's a kind of inherent contradiction built into the identitarian slash egalitarian worldview. That's the people who believe in groups and who also think that all groups should be equally represented in every pursuit of, uh, of achievement. Because if groups are real things and have integrity, they have their own culture, their own dynamic, <clears throat> then people are gonna, in different groups, are gonna end up being acculturated in different ways. They're gonna have different preferences. They're gonna spend their time differently. They're gonna, things are gonna interest them differently. And that being the case, they're going to acquire the capacity to perform different aspects of human endeavor to different degrees on average. That's a natural consequence of the fact of groupness. So if you know, if if I insist that the ethnicity actually matters for the the orientation of the human being, and then I also turn around and insist that people with these different ethnicities have to be equally proportionate, that that's that's a contradiction. Um, and, and the uh, effort to try to manufacture the equality of uh, profile after the fact is, is going to either override people's autonomy uh, or impose something on them that is, is uh, you know, inconsistent with their, with their liberty. Uh, that's what I think anyway. Robert, before you sit, before you get your question, just want to say one thing. I, I was smirking, you know, during the, the Jewish overrepresentation in um, Nobel Peace Prize, only because for I, I've since become more uh, sympathetic to the argument that the, you know these environments create their own cliques, where there tends to be something of like uh, an insider type nomination process. 
And having seen who they've given Nobel Peace Prizes to, I no longer consider that. <laughs> I don't. I don't give. Well, I'm good. talking about the economics Nobel. <laughs> is, is is what I was talking about. Well, and and then there's an interesting thing that you know, like demographics, and I'm looking. I'm, I'm speaking of, of my own here. They, you know, like they pride themselves on statistical overrepresentation when it's a good thing, and then want to you know ignore yeah. statistical over or overrepresentation when it's not a good thing, which is an interesting phenomenon that I've gotten sensitive to uh, growing up. Sorry about that, uh, Robert. I know you yes. have something there. I mean, speaking of sort of the intellectual class and the way in which uh, affirmative action assumes the underlying premise of these elite institutions getting to govern us, and it becomes a ticket to power to get admitted to those schools. Right. And in my, and I think that maybe the best example. I mean, I after I was I was the same student at Yale as I was at UT Chattanooga when I left Yale in protest of its policies. The but I would be treated entirely differently going forward in life based on where that degree was from. And I always thought that was sort of emblematic of the underlying problem that I had raised as a student at Yale. What if 100,000 equally deserving kids are not here? What if this is almost almost somewhat random that you, you're chosen? But the, the core problem of this particular elite that has been curated over the last generation to me was reflected in how COVID policy was handled, that we saw what this that this sort of combination of safe space culture don't tolerate dissident voices uh you know privileged people based on ancestry whether it's legacy admissions or race-based admissions uh or donor-based admissions this whole set of uh, you know sort of corruption of our intellectual approaches has created a corrupted intellectual class that mishandled and mismanaged COVID about as bad as it could be do i have a point in that regard yeah uh <laughs> I, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, a letter that circulated uh, from a member of the Board of Overseers at Harvard or a former member. His name is Jacobson. I can't remember. Michael Jacobson, I think, is the name. He's a financier in Boston. And it was to um, the uh, former president of Harvard. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm blocking on his name now. Uh, the one who, uh, uh, Larry... Bacow. Lawrence Bacow was the president of Harvard at the time, and this gentleman, Jacobson, wrote the letter. And the letter complained about a lot of things at Harvard. It complained about Harvard not standing up for Roland Fryer when he got railroaded on a Title IX thing. This is the great young African-American economist who uh, we could talk about. But in any case, uh, it, it complained about not standing up to the boycott, divest, and sanction people who were trying to get a movement against Israel on campus. And, and then it complained about not having a measured, balanced, scientifically grounded, independent, judicious assessment of what was necessary to do in the face of the pandemic, but instead panicking and shutting down across the board and sending kids home and uh, uh, whatnot. And uh, instead of leading, he says Harvard should be a leader, uh, we we became a cheerleader and a kind of bandwagon uh, rallier, and then a lot of other places followed in train. Uh, so I, I'm not an expert on public health issues. I, I did interview a few people for my podcast. I learned a little bit from people like Dr. Jay Bhattacharya out at Stanford, the uh, Great Barrington Declaration uh, author, and uh, you know, estimable figure who also has a PhD in economics. So I mean, I I'm prepared to believe that it was mishandled. Uh, and yes, it's true that the leaders of our most elite institutions, they panicked they, they, and they jumped on the bandwagon. They also did it after this George Floyd thing. I mean, uh, my president, uh, the Honorable Christina Paxson, is president of this university. She's my colleague in economics, had a distinguished career at Princeton before she came to Brown. She's been president here for a decade. And uh, the George Floyd thing happened and she writes one of these uh, dear colleague letters signed by every administrator, like 40 signatures, every dean, every center head, uh, the, the, the general counsel of the university, the person managing the portfolio, the, uh, et cetera, saying basically Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. And, and uh, we, our values are that Black Lives Matter. And the, the uh, uh, narrative of yet another 400 years of uh, anti-Black 
racism, systemic, whatever rhetoric. And I, you know, I read this thing and I thought, uh, this is a, this is monumental exercise in virtue signaling. This, this is, uh, we're supposed to be a academic institution. The, the whole question uh, here is, how do you know what? How do we understand these things? Not cheerleading, not not banner waving, uh, but there was so much of that that went on. So no, I, I don't think our uh, academic elites have weathered the storms that have, have befallen uh, the United States in the last five years uh, in any way that redounds to their credit. Uh, big question, and uh, hope you hope this time now. Um, what is the solution to all of this? I, the, I, have an operating, <laughs> I have an operating theory that, you know, like laws that prohibit um, Holocaust denial actually exacerbate anti-Semitism. Uh, I have, you know, the same theory applying it mutatis mutandis. Affirmative action laws actually exacerbate racism. Uh, you know, having movements like BLM ex actually exacerbate racism. Uh, having presidents like Obama and prime ministers like Justin Trudeau exacerbate all of this division by focusing on it. I mean, other than the grow up, how do you get people out of the perpetual sense of victimhood looking for someone to blame? Uh, how do you get a culture out of that? I'm afraid that uh, you don't get there without going through the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, I think there's going to be, there is building reaction, blowback, pushback. Uh, I think that uh, the, you know, the Brexit slash Donald Trump 2016 revolution is not over. Uh, I think that they push the envelope on all these things, this transgender thing. I, I'm not even going to discuss it. They took down one of my videos on YouTube when I had somebody on who discussed it. I'll just say you're asking an awful lot of a lot of people to have them buy the stuff that you're shoving down our throats here and you're daring us to say anything about it. You're asking an awful lot. Uh, I think when kids in Chicago, you know, come out of the housing projects and the tenements in the low-income neighborhoods and they come downtown and they, they're shooting up the place and you can't even have a 4th of July thing and they chasing tourists out of restaurants and turning over buses and setting cop cars on fire. You know, everybody can see what that is. Um... I think nobody believes that seven in 10 kids born to a black woman being born to a woman without a husband is a good thing. Nobody thinks it's noble. Nobody thinks it's honorable. Nobody thinks it's efficacious. We all can see that that's a disaster. Um, so I, you know, I think what happens is you have to be completely rejected at the at the electoral process. You have to you have to grapple with the ugly dark side of some of this uh, reaction, uh, some of the anti CRT stuff and and whatnot. Uh, but uh, that's what I think is going to happen. I, I don't think people are going to go happily into that good night. I think they're going to have to be driven into it. I think the Soros funded DAs in Philadelphia and in, in Manhattan and in Chicago and in Los Angeles and in et cetera, et cetera, are gonna to have to be run out of office by people who are tired of picking up the bodies on the street corner and tired of being carjacked. Uh, and uh, in the fullness of time, you know, uh, the people will be forced to, to reconsider their positions, but I don't think it's gonna be easy. I think it's gonna be ugly. All right. The, uh, uh, last question uh, before we let you go. Thank you for your time today, uh, and you know, people, and, and to also make sure that uh, remind people of your Substack podcast YouTube channel. I watch it a lot and read it a lot. Uh, it strikes me that a lot of what you've described over the last several years is uh, the thematic, or at least what I took as the thematic aspect from Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. That in many respects, the individual humanity of a community is still being disrespected and disregarded for obsession with looking at the color of things and the face of things rather than the substance of things. If Ralph Ellison was alive today, would the invisible man still be as relevant as it was then? Yeah, I think so. And, and I think actually there's somebody who kind of carries that banner. His name is Shelby Steele. 
Uh, he's controversial, but I think he's actually very much living in the spirit of, of Ellison. Uh, and in insisting on the priority, the primacy of our humanity and the fact that that actually bridges the gaps between the various ethnic and racial uh, uh, you know, sex uh, because uh, the, the uh, uh, commonality of our of our struggle to find dignified and meaningful lives. So uh, yeah, I, I think Ellison. You know, I'm not my skin. I'm skin and blood. Don't think I'm not my skin. I'm not. You know. Uh, you know, I'm not a literary uh, expert here, but I have read Invisible Man and thought a lot about about these kind of issues, and I do very much admire the legacy of Shelby Steele. He's in his late 70s now, you know, we're all getting older. Uh, but Shelby, from the very beginning, from his uh, book, uh, The Content of Our Character, and, and his early pieces in Harper's Magazine back in the 1980s, I remember, I'm Black, you're white, who's innocent, uh, has, uh, has blazed a trail in the Ellisonian spirit. So you guys, thanks a lot for having me on your show. Absolutely. Stick around. We'll say our proper goodbyes. It'll, it'll take no time at all. Uh, your Substack is named what? And I'll put the links in afterwards. It's glennlowry.substack.com. I'm the Glenn Show. glennlowry.substack.com. And not the Glenn Lowry with a W. That's the director of the MoMA who I discovered while <laughs> there's another that's, Glenn Lowry. That's right. I'm, I'm with the U, not a W. <laughs> Amazing. Glenn, thank you so much. Anytime you want to do this again, uh, Absolutely. Everyone in the chat, thank you all. I'll see you all tomorrow. Uh, have a good night and stick around. We'll say our proper goodbyes. Peace Bye out, now. everybody.